I love how watch people have got exit watches, grail watches, keeper watches. Like, there's just, we're always desperate to keep the conversation going in new and exciting ways, or maybe not the exciting part. I've seen too many people say the thing about having an exit watch or a grail watch, and they always just blast right through it. They maybe have like a year afterwards where they're saying they're not going to get one another watch, but they always do. So it's a pointless conversation for me, I think. On this week's show, we talk exit watches, fire watches, and ice watches. Omega's latest Speedmaster release gets a Psy rating, and we introduce a blog to drive, JLC's latest sales program, and the two faces of Hamilton, all in the company of an additional Scotsman, Alex from Fifthers Radio. Enjoy the show! Greetings, and welcome to a blog to watch weekly. We have with us a cast of usual suspects and a very unusual suspect. We have Ariel. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you for asking. We have David. How are you? Good. Never been better. Ever. Never been better. That's high thinking indeed. Never been better. Nothing better has ever happened in David's life than this very moment. We might be about to ruin that because we welcome to the show for the first time, but hopefully not the last time, though that is entirely a possibility. We welcome the world's greatest artisan, half a watchmaker from that greatest of mass-produced, high-horology quality watchmaker, Daniel Wellington, to the show from the Fifthless Radio Network. We welcome Alex, the watch regulator. Alex, how are you? What an introduction that went on for far too long. This might be a five-hour podcast. Now, the danger of this show, obviously, is that with two Scotsmen, we start to run away at pace, slurring our words. Alex, because of alcohol, me due to erudition and education. Alex has already got the drinks out, I see, from the video. Alex, you're where exactly this morning as you're speaking to us? I'm in Melbourne, Australia. Very good. So just to let you know, Ariel, he is one of those Scotsmen who complained about the weather and I actually decided to get up and do something about it, just as you've been suggesting to me every time I moan about the weather. Indeed. Okay, we have loads on the show this week. We're going to start off looking at an article by Jake called, Is Anyone Listening? Watch Enthusiasts Will Never Be 100% Satisfied. There is a thing in the watch geek world called the Outwatch. The one watch you would buy, which would then be the end of your collection, don't need to buy anything else. That's me done. So the question is, David, do you have an outwatch? I think it's it's not. We're not speaking about the merits of a watch here. It's hmm. it's when, once you're completely burned out from watch collecting. That that's probably the one that you are like, okay, well, this is the least of a compromise. This is a watch that is not bugging me in any sort of way that I would want to change in the long run. And I'm done with watches and watchmaking, and I'm out. And this is the watch that I keep to to remind me of all the great stuff that that I've encountered in the, or as much of the, of the great things, uh, as many of the great things in in watchmaking that I that I uh, that I really enjoyed uh, discovering. Right. So I would look for a watch if if I was looking for an escape watch that had as much of that wonder of that engineering of that chronometry of the design. Uh, the timelessness and all that other stuff that I like in watches, and just call that my escape watch. But it 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 come. The first thing is that you're burned out with watches, and it's not like, oh my god, I found the perfect watch. I'm I'm not interested in watches anymore. I don't think such a watch exists. So yours is an escape watch to escape the hobby rather than the final watch <laughs> yeah. celebrating all that's good. So when David wants out, that's what he's doing. Ariel, is there such a thing as a final watch? 
Uh, well, rather than argue the question, I'll answer it <laughs> uh, with two answers. Uh, one would essentially be a modification of like the watch you would take with you to a deserted island. Some type of one watch that you could rely on for the rest of your days. We don't know which one would survive, but obviously there's probably watches out there that would be like the best tool watch imaginable. If you had to have one, it'd be useful, it'd be durable, it'd be reliable. And, you know, I've had various articles going back more than 10 years now discussing that. Alternatively, if I wanted to have sort of like a, as David said, like a let's exit the hobby answer, I would just get something, I would just do something totally crazy. Um, I'd probably try to find like a, um, a minute repeater, but a broken one. And I would call it the random repeater because it would just go off randomly. And that's all I would do. It would tell the time and it would randomly do chiming stuff, which would be lovely and unpredictable. You know, like, you know, it's, it's like it's like a little life form on your wrist. Well, for me, the the true thing that you, you see in life as opposed to machine is this unpredictable randomness. So if it just randomly went off, how fun is that? I can't think of anything else. <laughs> Well, I think probably our watchmaker is the best person to ask as to whether he's ever handled a watch that's just randomly gone <laughs> a off. A random repeater? Uh, a random repeater. <laughs> Alex, is there a future in Daniel Wellington for the random repeater? I had a Casio F91W recently that I didn't know how to set the alarm on it because I only had it for a couple of days. Does that count? That counts. I love how watch people have got exit watches, grail watches, keeper watches. Like there's just, we're always desperate to keep the conversation going in new and exciting ways, or maybe not the exciting part. I've seen too many people say the thing about having an exit watch or a grail watch, and they always just blast right through it. They maybe have like a year afterwards where they're saying they're not going to get one another watch, but they always do. So it's a pointless conversation for me, I think. So you think it's just a, a non-existent entity, anyone that says they've got a Grail watch, if they actually had it, it wouldn't be a Grail watch. They'd be straight back at the AD buying the next no, thing. No, there's, yeah. In short shrift. Impossible, yeah. What is the favourite watch in your collection, Alex? Uh, probably this watch that I was just gifted by the Fifth Wrist crew, the community, all chipped in and got me this Oxen Junior, which, yeah, I love it. It's just because it was gifted to me, it's, it's really special, so... I haven't really had it off other than I had the Casio F91W on. But other than that, I've been wearing this all the time and love it to bits. Very, very special to me. So what we're saying is that the Grail watch for you mm. is an ultimate combination of Grail and Scotsman. It was something you were given for nothing. Free. Free. <laughs> free. <laughs> it's a free watch. Uh, David, yeah. favourite watch in your own collection? We don't really speak about our own collections very much. What's what's the what's the one that's always staying? That's a that's a really good question, actually. Um, I, one of one of the watches I keep falling back on is the is the diamond set Casio that retails for like seventy nine dollars. I find it a hilarious watch in all kinds of ways, and I'm happy that it's so <laughs> so affordable. And it's a watch that if I worked at Casio, I totally would have pushed that that we make. To take two freaking diamonds, probably industrial diamonds from a drill head or something like that, and put it into a watch and sell it with a diamond certificate, and and just have people enjoy it and and create a crystal on top, like a front element. It's not even a crystal that is also faceted. It's just a great looking watch. You know, it's it's a, it's a cool twist on a watch that we all know is like your your box standard digital Casio with two diamonds in it, held by little claws and all that. So yeah, that's that's the one that I, I I really enjoy wearing. Not daily, but every once in a while. So so far our Grail Watch collection costs zero pounds from Alex 
and about $70 from David. Yep. So the Grey Watch Collection so far is running about $70. Ariel, what's the watch you're rescuing from the fire? <laughs> wow. <laughs> I, I don't, I mean, look, for me, I like to rediscover watches in my collection. You know, like, oh, I forgot I had this. And that's a lot of fun for me. So I, I think that it goes back to that conversation. We're always collecting new things, even within our own collection. And it's that ability to move around. Like sometimes like I'm in love with some silly retro watch I had when I was younger. Other times it's some latest dive watch, which is just a cool tool watch. Other times it's some fancy luxury watch, which, you know, is very well received by others. And that's the thing. There's so much cool options and what you can put on your wrist. You know, I, I hate to narrow it down. I feel like these are good for conversations. They're fun. But like, God forbid you ever actually had to choose one. So Ariel is just rescuing the watch box rather than anything specific in it. Yeah, I mean, like I said, sometimes you know you open a a, a drawer, you 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 get something from the safe. You're like, oh, I didn't remember having this, and you get to have this fun time with it all over again. And for me, that's cool. So effectively, you two Ariel are saying that the Grail watch is zero pounds. I ha well, I had to acquire it at some point. I had to acquire it at some point. Look, I mean, everyone goes through these modes of collecting in their life, and. When you collect things, there's a, so, a lot of feelings associated with that. And so when you go, th that's why it's never a good idea to like buy a watch when you don't want to buy one. You buy one when you're in a good mood so that when you revisit that watch in the future, you're reminded of that good mood. And, and again, hopefully you have lots of good moods to remember, not just one. I mean, maybe you've just had one good experience around buying a watch and that's that one good mood. Uh, I thankfully have a few good moods to remember through watches. We just created a brand new question in the Boring Watch community of what's your fire watch what's the watch you run into the burning building for is this another oh, pointless boy. thing to talk about <laughs> get togethers yes yes let's create a whole new club <laughs> just to talk about that 2023 marks 25 years of Urwork a brand from Baumgartner and Fry with the ambition to challenge auto lingerie with new ideas and modern technologies making art that tells time in 2018 they pushed the boat out once more by adopting two approaches to timekeeping Alongside a new wristwatch, Urwerk released an automatic mechanical control clock inspired by Abraham Louis Grege. The Atomic Master Clock, or AMC, ensures chronometry and mechanically winds, sets and regulates the paired AMC watch through its docking station. For more, search for Urwerk at blogtowatch.com or follow at Urwerk Geneva on Instagram. We talked about watches there of very little value that were our grail watches and gifted to us. In the news this week, Cristiano Ronaldo is gifted a $630,000 Jacob & Co watch to celebrate his £175 million a year move to a sports club in Saudi Arabia. Would you be rescuing this watch from the fire, Alex? Um, probably not. Maybe throwing it into the fire is probably better for the world. But um, yeah, probably not risking my life for it no matter the the cost everybody in this story has got so much money does it really make any difference if you give something that's worth six hundred and thirty thousand dollars to someone who's earning 175 million pounds a year does anybody really care is this just news because it's clickbait to get us watch enthusiasts look oh more watches in the news i like the fact that it was gifted to him with something that they wanted to promote because that happens all the time that's not new that they made a point to specifically mention that i mean what's happening here is a marketing play where it's trying to associate not just 
a watch, but a Jacob and Company watch with celebration. Hey, I'm doing something we're celebrating. How do I celebrate? Well, I celebrate with Jacob and Company. Like, that's basically what they're trying to say. And Jacob and Company celebrating me because I celebrate them through my Instagram feed. So it's like everybody's celebrating one another. Like, is that news? I don't know. It's PR. I wouldn't call it news. I really appreciate the, the gem setting and the quality that they do or they, they have done for themselves. But a lot of them are just... I made this point in the article that we discussed last week. Just because you can make something cool, but it's ginormous and unwearable, is that really an engineering feat? Uh, as long as it becomes unwearable, it's it's an object. It's it's a cool object, but it's not a cool watch, in my opinion. So a lot of these, as long as they are like 42, 43, something like that, then sure, they are super cool especially these gem set ones like this Cristiano Ronaldo one with all these green, I don't know what these are, like Severites or, or Emeralds or something like that, are fantastic with this invisible setting. But again, as long as these are wearable, I like them. And the moment they are not, then I don't. Did anyone do any research on the actual stones? Well, I was going to ask you, Alex, if you, if what color these stones actually were. <laughs> this was <laughs> an excuse to pick on me for my color blindness. I looked up the stones on eBay and David's dream of a gem set Casio might be well within his grasp for about $48. Yeah. Because there's tons and tons of them starting at one cent bids and some nine carat ones for like $4. So oh, that's yeah, cool. make, it, make it happen, David. Speaking of which, I was I was at the Hong Kong Watch and Clock Fair. I'm not sure if I told this story before. Maybe I have. And there are different, different areas and some of them are really posh and fancy and some other ones have like several hundreds of you know, just the same kind of booth. And each of them are a supplier to the watch industry, case makers, dial makers, whatever. One of these had just three little windows. And in each window, there was one watch. And these watches were just iced out completely, invisibly set, you know, dripping with diamonds. You couldn't even see the case material. It had so many diamonds. that, And the diamonds were holding each other in place. So this is what invisible setting is. You don't even see the prongs or anything like that. The ones here were unbelievably high quality, really genuinely like OEM quality, actually better than some, what some brands do in Switzerland. And so I stood there and I could see this guy in his 30s and I waited around until he noticed me and then he invited me in and we started talking and uh, I you know, started asking some questions and as it turned out, uh, I don't want to get him into any trouble, so I'm not going to say you know, who his dealer is in, um, in the US and elsewhere, but these watches end up on the wrist of celebrities, you know, at the cost of like millions, hundreds of thousands of dollars, but probably more like seven figures. And he showed me some of these Instagram videos where, where you know, you could see like the, the celebrities flaunting the watch and he had work in progress, pictures of the watch being made. And so this whole thing seemed, seemed very legit. So this is just to say that you can get unbelievably high quality things in, uh, in, in aftermarket. And for a while, I've been considering sending one of my nicer watches out, or at least the bezel and have him just ice it all out. <laughs> I would love to have that. Maybe, maybe someday. Well, there's the, there's the sequel to our fire watch. What is your ice watch? So what watch from your collection are you sending to get iced? Uh, I don't I don't have it anymore, but I, I had this Breitling B55 yachting, which is uh, um, which was in titanium and a titanium bracelet. And I was really, it had this really cool chunky bezel that I wanted to send out and just have it all, all iced out. On a titanium bracelet, titanium case watch, I thought that would have made for some cool contrast for sure. I have got an ongoing idea or plan to make a solid gold shroud for a Seiko tuna. <laughs> to act as a diving weight. Yeah, I guess I guess it would work it would work for that as well for sure. Scare all the fish away with all the reflections. 
end of year report record breaking year 2022 for the swiss watch industry lots of big numbers coming out of them ariel what's your thinking on is this genuine success or is this just covid bounds is this just being mixed in by price increases is the swiss watch industry actually doing as well as it would like the numbers to say i think what you're seeing is them doing their absolute best to point out the highlights, right? Like, okay, everyone, there's a lot of bad stuff, but here's a couple of good things. I don't trust any numbers of any kind, anything that has to do with percentages of increase or decrease or whatever. It's interesting if anybody ever admits to a decrease. A lot of people don't. There's so much fudging the numbers and interesting ways of doing accounting that I just I wouldn't believe any, any percentages. It is true that in December of 2022, until now, business is very, very slow. People are reading about watches. People are talking about watches. Not a lot of people are buying watches right now because there's just a lot of hesitation. People are in a holding pattern, if you will. It is true that with China opening up, there was like some immediate uplift and there are parts around the world that are doing well. But I think the industry is waiting to see what 2023 is going to be like. It's going to be a very rocky period of time, but I think that they have an incentive to keep morale high, right? And that's something that they try to do. Watches and Wonders is coming. Keep morale high. They need to make sure that the retailer dollars goes to them. Remember, you're a retailer and you need to spend your money. You have some decisions about where to spend your money. You want to spend your money with a brand that you think is going to sell. So how does a brand communicate that they have a very sellable product. Oftentimes the best way to do it is by posturing that they're doing so great. If you're in such high demand, of course it'd be great to have our products in our in your store, right? And so a lot of this has to do that. So LVMH or Swatch Group or Richemont or any one of those has an incentive to say we're doing well because they want retailers to buy their inventory. That's a huge deal for them. So they have no incentive really to ever say they're doing anything but amazing. And knowing that, I think that it, it, it you know, cast, cast a light on, on how to read some of these figures. Four of us here are from four very different corners of the globe. Ariel, you're feeling about the community, about the economy in the States and watches. Is that people are being cautious? Not a lot of people are in what I would call a celebratory mood, which creates consumer confidence to spend money. The idea is not that I, I have money and I can spend it, but if I spend it, do I feel confident that I'll get more money to replace it? Uh, do I feel that this is an appropriate time to celebrate, right? Like a lot of people are very conscious. I don't want to buy a $50,000 watch if I'm the only one that can celebrate it. If my friends and my family, if everyone's going to be like, what the hell did you do? Like, that's a real thing. People want to feel like their buddy's going to be like, yeah, way to go. You made it. You got it. Um, because remember, so much of this hobby is now online. People share their purchases immediately. If one of us <laughs> or some analog of us is like, really, man, you spent that much right now? Like nobody wants to feel that way after spending a bunch of money on a wristwatch. And again, there's very few people that buy it in a vacuum, even if they're not like, you know, Instagram and a blog to watch enthusiast, they probably have their own little group of friends that they show this stuff off to. No one buys a, 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 a blinged out watch because they're not trying to show it off, right? So this all goes into it. So I think that we're waiting for a more uh, celebratory or just sort of optimistic consumer environment to increase the comfort level around buying what is a leisure and fun hobby item. Alex, is everybody there in a celebratory mood? 
It is the summer down there at the very least. It's always summer down here for a Scotsman, let me tell you. <laughs> People are still buying watches, but there's compared back to the UK anyway, there always just seems to be so much cash here and people that have so much money. But um, I find it interesting actually looking at the figures where they were talking about no increase in the number of units, but an increase in overall sales. So it's, I know watch brands put their prices up pretty much every year. At what point do you make too big a gap between the everyday consumer that has money to spend, especially in a looming recession or already into a recession? And then at what point do does more of the money shift over to small micro brands and it becomes a death by a thousand cuts for the big brands when people spend their money more wisely or try and look for more bang for buck rather than that luxury experience people have been traditionally taught to thrive for. I mean, it is part of the issue, and we'll discuss it a little bit when we come and talk about Omega later on. We're seeing the continual uplift in prices of the luxury watch, like the entry-level Omega, the entry-level Rolex, the entry-level Panerai or whatever, is now much more expensive than it used to be. This is the brands kind of self-protecting in that if they can make their entry-level as valuable as possible, it actually puts them in a niche of people who are less likely to be affected and impacted by a recession because they're just making their stuff worth more. And as we generally know, the richer you are to begin with, the less impactful a recession is. It always affects those right at the bottom first. Have the brands got that much strategic thinking to do that? I, I, I got a comment here. I think that what you're seeing is more a reflexive action as opposed to a conscious strategic move that they think makes sense. It is sort of this marketing 101 philosophy. It's pretty crude because it's not applied very well, but they're like, well, in a recession, the richer people are affected less. So let's just market to that audience. Oh, okay, that makes sense. But you can't just do that by taking more or less the same brand and increasing the price. Like you have to increase the value of the product as well as the brand in order for people to spend more money. So they sort of fallaciously believe that if they somehow enter a new higher price segment, they'll be more insulated from economic recession, which is sort of true, but they're not genuinely part of that higher price demographic. They haven't earned that reputation before the recession, right? They're trying to do it after the fact, which is crude and probably won't work. You actually have to earn that when you're outside of a recession. In any event, Seiko is a perennial example that we continue to go back to, is obviously, no one's denying this, trying to go to a higher price category. But we all keep agreeing that it's kind of crude and awkward, doesn't feel right. Because what Seiko isn't doing is investing in a more valuable brand. It's the same Seiko, and we like Seiko, but I think we'll all agree, and probably Seiko will agree, they haven't said, okay, everyone, now we're charging double, and here's why Seiko is worth double. I'm open-minded to it. I really am, and I think a lot of people are. But Seiko hasn't taken the step to really do that. And I think that that's really what the problem is. When you So when you see brands increasing their price points, I think they're doing it out of a sense of fear and reflexively trying to go to a, a, a more stable market demographic rather than uh, an actual sense of profits and they think this is good. In fact, the, the, the tendency is to actually go cheaper. What happens when brands are really successful? They tend to introduce higher volume models that come in at lower price points because their brand is in such high demand. That's the natural thing to do when, you're, when your brand is being uplifted. When you, when you come out with more expensive models time after time, what I see is, is companies who have a contracting uh, set of buyers. 
the Seiko thing, I think, is quite interesting because in my mind, they could possibly be just adjusting themselves into more of the Swiss luxury watch range of we're going to put a luxury price tag on our products now where I've always thought there's tremendous value with Seiko watches, Grand Seiko as well to a certain extent, maybe more so with Seiko. But with Swiss watches, there is always more that kind of mystery of why does this watch cost this much and this other one that's very similar cost half as much or, or twice as much. I feel like, um, yeah, Seiko are maybe kind of just copying the, the Swiss a bit too much these days. But I think in terms of prices going up, It'd be great to see a reflection of that each year and in the technology that the brands actually are offering to market. Um, I think if they're not doing that kind of year on year, at least every couple of years you're seeing tremendous improvements or at least some improvements, then yeah, it makes a bit a bit of a difficult pill to swallow. Let's say go back the way a bit and I've got a funny feeling this might really get on David's goat and this is an article Jager Lecoultre starts selling vintage watches with the collectibles program now we dealt last week with JLC David and lo and behold this week not only are they going backwards but they're deciding to sell these watches themselves David isn't it it almost like kind of like a very tame April Fool's thing like it it's is. not the it's not the most outlandish thing, but like yes. I can see a relatively conservative person being like, "Have I got a joke for you?" <laughs> it's a hundred percent like that. And for the record, I, we had no idea that this was coming. I mean, we had an idea, but we we didn't know that JJ was actually doing this until they they introduced this or launched this via email and 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 the press release. And it's hysterical in a way. I I'm not saying that this is bad. I think this is great. And I think every brand should be doing something like this to celebrate their older models and 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 references and and collections and keep them in circulation and also to find some of the know-how that got lost on the way. I'm sure that there is at least some form. I know that there are some surface treatments and some other design elements and other stuff in these older watches from decades ago that the, the current Swiss watch industry is not practicing. And there, there's cool stuff to be discovered here. But at the same time, I think this should coexist with actual pioneering work and engineering and other stuff. And if I open my, my inbox and I search for Jager Leclerc, it's just going to be a selection of bonkers exhibition collaborations that is very artsy and totally nonsensical and just a bunch of anniversaries and re-releases. I'm not sure of the year when they last introduced a completely new, fresh uh, collection. I'm not even sure four or five years ago, maybe more. That was not vintage-inspired or something like that, but they sat down with a clean sheet of paper and said, okay, this is what we're going to do. I recall the Duometre being one, but that was... In the in yeah. the early 2010s or something like that. So so anyway, yeah, this is totally like an April Fool's thing that that just you know uh, reiterates the point that I was making. I'm imagining the people at Jager having a brainstorming session and being like, okay, so why don't we just sell our actual vintage watches? And then someone being like, <laughs> you know, that's so crazy, it could work. How safe is that? <laughs> yeah, like they'll never see that one coming. And I think they I think they truly believe that this is a brilliant idea. Here's the funny thing. This is a company that for at least all of our collective collector lives has prided itself on being a manufacturer, right? They make mm-hmm. their own movements. 
They make a lot of the cases. They make the Atmos exactly. clocks. They make they make more of the watch stuff than most of the watch brands. And now they're like, no, no, don't come to us for the stuff we make. Come to the stuff that a version of us a long time ago made. It's no longer selling themselves as a watch manufacturer, but now it's like literally what they want to be a brand. We are a Maison. You can buy our future. You can buy our past. You can buy our present. You can buy our honey. <laughs> <laughs> it's good honey yes it's a shift from what we're accustomed to and it's an even further shift than what the people who working there even understand right because they understand okay we make watches we sell watches but now it's like we make watches, we sell watches but we also buy back our old watches and change them and then sell them for sometimes more money than our new ones like we don't understand that business model because it's a different <laughs> business model and i just feel that they're becoming so confused now. They're all trying to take in like some watch brands are like, let's be design agencies. And other watch brands are like, let's also be stores. And now watch brands are like, you know what? Let's also be auction houses and make, you know, so it's all this crazy stuff. It's all this hybridization. We knew it would happen. This is just another insane flavor. Uh, uh, there will be so many evolutionary dead ends. Possibly this is one of them. Maybe not. But, you know making for a good conversation it's very very weird but you're spot on saying that this is rather than just selling recreations of their vintage watches they've just reverted we're just actually selling the vintage watches <laughs> it's it's just incredibly strange i think you're right david the last watch i remember that really got me excited from glc was the whole duometer uh -huh. range which is just phenomenal but interestingly in last week's show the reel that was put together to promote it actually had a video which was from the original a blog to read mm. that Ariel did and that was the SEALs version of a JLC dive watch and again that was just an amazing watch and where has all of that gone? I bought that specific Navy SEALs watch in protest that's where, where JLC was going. If you look up my review, I say that I bought this with my own money and I say, you know, like, this is the JLC that I like. And I'm not saying this is the only JLC that has to exist, but it's a JLC that I would love to exist. It was the Master Compressor Navy Seals Automatic. The one I got was the rubber clad titanium bracelet, super comfy, amazing watch, great engineering and all that. And that's a 2007, 2008 watch. And I just wanted to add that we're talking about a brand here that has created over 1,200 different mechanical movements and has over 400 patents obtained. This is what we are missing. You know, where's that 1,201st caliber that we're seeing? Or the 401st yeah. patent? It's, it's all going down the drain along with the know-how and, and, the, and the, the courage to make new stuff. And that, that's a pity, really. It is the most middle-class thing I've ever heard, David, of buying a watch and protest at the watch brand. Mm -hmm. That's just a, a brilliant piece of marketing. That's probably where they're going to go next, is buy our watches to protest our watches. Yeah. Buy this, buy this. Tell us how much you hate us by buying these watches. <laughs> Tell us how much you dislike where we're I, going I bought and what it we're used, doing. But that's a, that's a good marketing plot, actually, yeah. So if you want one of those like calendar watches for $17,000, maybe oh, yeah. you'll buy that in protest because you're angry at the $30,000 vintage watch they're selling. The, the, <laughs> the website is very nice that they've set up from GLC for these watches. And there's some lovely watches. The Memobox Polaris 2, the blue one, $23,900. But the expense, what the, the Swiss website designer 
must have charged them for this microsite for selling like nine watches for one vintage memo box that's what it that's what they charge them yeah <laughs> alex are you particularly attracted by any of these vintage jlc's from what i've heard they all they're all a bit on the expensive side and i guess the you whole think? shocking the buying <laughs> vintage watches from directly from the brand seems a bit alien to me because any vintage watch collector that i know would never send their vintage watches to the brand to have it worked on or refurbished because you would get back a totally screwed up watch so suddenly i just wonder if they're actually doing the work on them themselves or if they're outsourcing it to someone else i know longine have been doing something similar for a while now but they have didn't really roll out any kind of big i'm sure you guys heard about it but they didn't really make a big deal about it and i wonder how successful it's been for them is this not extremely dangerous you know we've had uh, yuzi on the show a couple of weeks ago the man who likes to spot a problem with a vintage watch is this not just asking for trouble the first time that a site doing this that's associated with the brand puts something up that somebody clever goes on and goes wait a minute guys that's fake or there's something really wrong with that you know the reputational risk of accidentally being a brand that puts something on your own website and doesn't spot that there's a really obvious problem with it auction sites do all the time and they're at least supposed to have some level of expertise in doing this i just think this is a really risky strategy you have to be so careful not to accidentally put something on that's got you know a bezel from a watch that's 10 years newer than the rest of the watch that you're claiming it is or has clearly obviously been you know repolished or you know something terribly obvious to the naked eye it just gets missed in the giant cogs and wheels that exist in in, in the moving of these kind of big brands hey everyone this is jason from watchrolling on ig i have a question about the jacket that ariel's wearing in his profile picture i i, I can almost tell it's a u.s navy aviator jacket the insignia looks like a naval aviator pin i was wondering if that's what it was i can't really see with the pixelation if it is that or even if it isn't what's the story behind the jacket because it's pretty cool and does ariel have a connection to the navy hope you guys are having a great day thanks for all the content appreciate it talk to you soon okay ariel this was an audio clip asking about the jacket that you are regularly photographed in and appeared on the show notes for the episode that me and you did on Superlative. They're claiming it might be a Navy jacket. Is there a story behind this jacket? Is this jacket going to be available in stores near you? Tell us about your pilot's jacket. Or That is a, a jacket I bought from a company called Shot New York. That they did, a ver- they did a watch with Hamilton, actually, I think. They have a store here in LA. They make nice jackets, including military ones. And I bought that jacket there so i don't i don't know what else there is to say about it i so there is no there is no military history to it within your own family it's just a jacket you liked and a jacket it's you bought. a fashion jacket from an actual like company that makes military things so they make also fashionable things that's a cool thing that they made but they you know it's an actual company that makes i don't know all that stuff Good stuff. Well, there you go. If you've got a question about Ariel's fashion sense or any other sort of sense, then do send it into podcast at a blog to watch.com. Morning. I love the comment uh, on today's show about watch manufacturers and their claims of accuracy um, and compare it to cars. So, my Alfa Romeo, if it says that it's got anything less than 30 to 40 miles range left on it, 
I don't drive it anywhere because I've run out of fuel twice in it when it said that it had about 25 or 30 miles left in the tank. So uh, yeah, definitely typical Italian manufacturer for you. Can't trust it. So Simon's Alfa Romeo is at the other end of the spectrum, whereby if it shows that it's got 30 miles of fuel left, you should probably fill up immediately. And uh, Mike has been doing a little test for us, following on from the suggestion last week of real-world uh, sampling of speed variations of watches. Any real-world thoughts on accuracy? So accuracy in car clocks, you mean? Is it... Are other well-known car clocks that aren't accurate or are? I've got one in a tractor, which is a digital clock in a tractor, and it is consistent. I don't know what is what is relating to it, what's wrong with it, but you leave it for a week and it's 10 minutes <laughs> out of date. That's, that's Dutch Dutch tractor manufacturers for you. Yeah, it's 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 sunset. It should just say, like, is it sunset or sunrise? And it should just switch between <laughs> these two and then that's it. I, I, I once had this uh, Nissan 370Z um, that had two clocks, maybe like 10 inches away from each other. And one of them was this typical Japanese microwave digital clock you know that Japanese car makers will. <laughs> they just, a little they rectangular just, one. They just, yeah, they just can't resist taking these freaking clogs from microwaves and just putting into that like the dashboard of a nice car. <laughs> and and it had this enter, this multimedia screen or display or whatever just below it. And I hate those screens because I sit in front of a screen all day long. So when I go for a drive, I switch these off. But when that screen was, you couldn't switch off the clock on that display. And because the car had GPS, that display that display clock was synchronized and perfectly accurate. But the microwave clock above it was never accurate. And so it was just always nerving me out that it, the two were out of sync for a long time. So my OCD was just like basically over the top. You know, like, and I figured out how to like reset it at a stoplight or something like that. So I would sync them up like perfectly <laughs> and then go back next week for a drive. And the two were like half a minute apart. And I'm like, why, why have like 10 inches apart, two clocks? You cannot switch either of them off, and they are just always all over the place. So, so yeah, and it was not even a tractor, you see. I mean, I think we've all wanted for a long time car makers to take this more seriously, right? Like, they take the outside of the car really seriously, and hopefully they take the inside of the car seriously. And they take, like, the dashboard stuff seriously. And the clock, I think people check the time a lot when they drive, right? Yeah. And so... David makes a good point, especially the Japanese, like, just throw in, like, this is the same part, that little LCD, that little rectangular yeah. panel, right? You know, and and you'd think that, like, because it's something you look at a lot, you know, like the speedometer or something, they put more design emphasis into it. But since you've had more software people as opposed to visual designers creating these interfaces, the interest has gone down. Like, we're... It's like with smartwatches. The first 10 years of smartwatches, they couldn't make a nice style to save their life. Now it's like starting to get a lot better. And it's the same thing with these digital screens in the cars. Like they just stopped caring. So when they were just buying a part, they didn't have a lot of choice. But now they have the ability to design some cool stuff and they should do it. I've always appreciated, like I had a Lexus one time. They had like an analog clock as opposed to like a digital one. That was fun. But I, I think that cars can go back to that. I remember in the 80s, there was a car that I, my, my dad had, and it, it proudly said quartz on there. And I remember as a kid, I didn't know why. I was like, why is the name of this stone like on the clock? <laughs> like, I had no idea why they were so proud of this. <laughs> Again, I was a little kid at the time, but I just, I'm just thinking back to the time. I was like, that's how a car was. So I was like, oh, this, this car has a quartz clock. Definitely a quality vehicle. 
are, are there any mass produced like uh, uh, semi affordable cars these days, new ones that actually have analog clocks in them? They might be battery powered, but they're actually analog rather than just this. I think the last one I saw was probably a Mercedes. Does the that Mini? Would be 10 years Does the ago. Mini have an analog one? By analog, do you mean mechanical or or? Well, no, I, I mean like an a- analog display. Oh, because they're always going to be. I don't think there's going to be any that are wind up anymore. But they're always going to. But are there any that still? Lexus definitely. New cars. Yeah. Still had so new Lexus still come with an analog Many of display of the time, as opposed to all being digital. Infinity might do it as well. It. I know Mercedes has. They're digital, but they're analog digital clocks a lot of the time. Yeah. Right, okay. Then you guys remember the TISO that had that you could plug into the dashboard of your car? I feel like that's a relatively recent thing. Was this a dream? It may have been a dream. What a terrible <laughs> dream. There was the Breitling and there was the Beauvais. The TISO that goes in your Rolls Royce? No, it wasn't the, <laughs> it wasn't the TISO. I think it was a Renault if my mind. I don't know how many gin and tonics I'd had that day at work, but I'm pretty sure it was a TISO that plugged into a Renault. Who needed that relationship more? I see. Yes, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's a thing. It's um, it's it's plugged into an Alpine A110, and it's a it's a Thank really uh, okay. chunky um, TISO dashboard chrono. Is what how it's dare called. you all question me? <laughs> That's a, Alex. You can log off now. Now that you've been proven yeah. right. Finishing a high. <laughs> Finishing a high. So yeah. So Bovey and TISO. Who would have thought those two brands would ever be side by side in in technological and uh, uh, luxury achievements? Was it IWC that had a long term relationship with Mercedes? Yes, they still do. I do wonder to what extent that's actually something some of these brands should be doing more of. For sure. Like you know, making uh, you know a point of the fact that their watches or their clocks are actually used in the cars, actually branding it up properly. Because it's going to get folk interest. It's going to, you know, as you say, people do tell the time in a car an awful lot. I noticed that the other day as I was driving along. Thing, I say, I do read the time in the car more often than I read it when I'm sitting at my desk. Uh, and yet, you don't have Seiko putting all their clock designs, or you know, even when you see football and it says "time by whoever underneath the digital clock," you don't even get that. Like your Volvo flash up. This is done by. Seiko or, or or whoever. So anyway, Seiko Seiko did have I think it was a sport tour kind of design in the in the Lexus I S, I think. Uh it totally had this triple subdial genuine watch face kind of design in the dashboard of the Lexus IS for some time. That that's yeah, for sure. It was really well done. It, it was similar to Chronograph where it had subdials, yes. and that's what David means. It was yeah. it was well done. I've seen a little bit of that of that, yeah, for sure. It was very cool. Well, welcome to the first episode of A Blog to Drive. Yeah. We hope you enjoyed that. If you've got any good car stories and watch stories, or just good car stories, let's adapt, let's move on, then uh, do email podcast at ablogtowatch.com. Hey, Rick, Ariel, and David. This is Brendan Cunningham just reaching out to see what you think about the Omega Speedmaster Super Racing in steel that was released last week. Comes in at about 44 and a quarter millimeters in size, reference 329.30.44.51.01.003. So Omega's got this labeled as a master chronometer resistant to 15,000 gauss of, of uh, magnetic influence. And I guess that's robust to some of the strongest rare earth magnets that are around. 
Um, it's got two barrels in serial for about a 60 hour power reserve and this sort of apiary design or, or bee-like designed. Uh, there's these yellow and black stripes on the nine o'clock chronograph minute accumulator hand and a sandwich dial with a honeycomb motif. And then also there's this special font for the 10th day of the month, which is sort of like a nod to the 10th anniversary of an Aquaterra that had that 15,000 Gauss magnetic resistance. And I guess that one was nicknamed the Bumblebee. So inside is one of the most significant developments in the caliber 9920 with this so-called birate technology. So this may be the first silicon hairspring in an Omega movement, or really maybe any movement with a regulator. It has a snail cam that allows an adjustment to the hairspring itself down to one tenth of a second. And that gives the watch supposedly zero to plus two seconds error per day. So this is well in excess of Metas chronometer standards and could be one of the most accurate, if not the most accurate mass produced movements out there to rival even some of the best mechanisms that one chronograph competitions back in the day. So what do you think? Do you think it's worth 10,200 Swiss francs? Looking forward to hearing what your thoughts are. Okay, gentlemen, let's start as we trailed previously. How many size out of 10? David, I think you were saying that this is probably going to be an eight and a half. Mm-hmm. When Omega actually revealed what they were releasing, did it get the blood pressure raised even slightly? Mm-hmm. Uh, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> I thought about it. So this is the Spyrate system, uh, which is zero to plus two seconds accuracy. The Omega Speedmaster cool. Super Racing Watch. It's being, you know, codenamed the Beemaster because it looks honeycombed and it's also got references to uh, previous Aquaterras and all the rest of it. I, I think the most important thing about this watch is actually the price. Because this, again, is in relation to the previous conversation. Yeah, it's, it's great, new tech, whatever. I, I don't think, I have my doubts that people really care whether it's zero to plus two seconds or minus two to plus four. I, I don't think in the grand scheme of things it makes a whole heap of difference to the actual usability of the watch. But the fact that this is new technology that's presumably now going to appear everywhere just like coaxial technology did when Omega introduced it, and that this resulted in a price bump up to 10 grand, this would appear to be where Omega are now driving the Speedmaster to sit just below the Daytona kind of pricing point of a Rolex. Everything is about pushing the Speedmaster as a brand within Omega at the moment, it would seem, from Moonswatch to this to try and get everyone to recognize that Speedmaster is this cultural icon, not just a watch geek icon. I like the fact that it's a big watch that's 40, I think it's 44 and a half mil. Yes. But other than that, I, I can take or leave the technology. I mean, it's all very clever and very interesting. Ariel, thoughts on the technology itself? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have a lot to say about this. Let, let's first talk about the technology because that's what you asked first. Uh, this is Omega, again, kind of trailing Rolex in their own way. Yes, Rolex is not doing a silicon, but Omega has been you know, doing that. We know that they've developed a variety of technologies that they're not always sure how to implement. These technologies are vastly expensive, and they want to get the most bang for their buck, so they implement them slowly over time. Now they're introducing sort of the next phase, which is a revised regulation system. They want to have more things that are exclusively theirs, 
and they believe that they can mass produce these in some way. They introduce it in one model. So this is sort of the start, and this is going to be, I think, a little bit more expensive than what's going to come afterwards. So I agree with you that it is very expensive, but I don't think that that's the plan. But they're introducing it, and they always put a premium on new technology, you know, trying to get as much money as they can out of it. So they have a little special touches, the, the you know, the chronograph seconds hand with the gradient and the, 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 the fancy dial. And the black and yellow comes from the 15,000 Gauss watch, which this is sort of a 10-year anniversary of. That watch introduced this sort of, you know, high mag magnetic resistance. This takes it a bit further. So for them, this is the follow-up to the 15,000 Gauss. And you can see that with this sort of black and yellow striped seconds hand on the dial. So that's where they're going for there. I think that this sort of bright, bright yellow is a little bit too harsh. So they wanted to go for a little bit more of a muted yellow, which from a fashion perspective, I agree. The case, the 44.25 millimeter wide is unchanged from this generation Speedmaster. So no new case or anything like that. Um, so I think that there's people who may have not remembered the watches that came before this that are speculating as to what all this design language means. It's, again, it's just Omega looking at their past. And I think that the bigger story here is that there may be an Omega in, your, in the future that you will buy that has this new you know, escapement technology, which is cool. I don't know too much about how it works yet. I mean, obviously I've read about it and I've seen it, but we'll, we'll see exactly how um, this technology plays out. It's probably very fun to, to watch Spyrate in action and all that. So your next Omega might have this. It's probably not going to be the Super Racing. They called it the Super Racing just because they thought that was a cool name. It's got nothing to do with racing or super it's you know, just when it comes to omega and product names i mean they're 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 playing it fast and lose with logic okay so that that's i mean it's a cool watch but again this probably isn't going to be the one you're going to get if you're interested in the spy rate uh, mechanism so is this watch actually meta certified where is the zero to plus two rating coming from in other words is this a zero to plus two rating with this as a movement on a workbench similar to cost or is it a zero to plus two rating for the metas test which shows it cased up and sort of in everyday use in terms of positional rating it's hard to answer that question it's a good question it is meta certified you know look this watch has just come out they're going to make these claims they're going to say well in our testing it was able to do that i i believe it the one thing that I know is that these types of escapements, especially made out of silicon, are extremely sensitive to vibrations. And that's the one area that they don't test, in my opinion, as well. There's a lot more vibrations which happen in day-to-day -day wear. So we're just going to have to see. I, I, I think that it's going to be very accurate. It's going to be something that people like. I think it's going to be, it has sort of a sex appeal to the way it looks, an interesting shape and a cool name. But we, we really won't know exactly how well it's going to perform until just people start wearing them. Well, I've got a ropey Lamborghini tractor and some potted roads. Oh, there you go. Omega want to, Omega want to send me one of these. I'll test it for vibration, no problem at all. I just have whenever I see that it's zero. I mean, the basic thing: this watch will never lose time. That's effectively what the claim is. It will only gain. It will never lose. And I just find that fundamentally a difficult claim to relate to real world use. So we'll see. So Alex, you expect to see one of these in at Daniel Wellington anytime soon? I was wondering when I was going to get to resign. So this is it. Um, <laughs> I think it's really exciting, this uh -huh. um, the technology in this. 
the fact that they're claiming zero to two, I mean, once you put that in the customer's mind, it's it's difficult to get away from that, which makes me yeah. believe that this thing is potentially gonna gonna work. Also, the the micro adjustments when it comes to regulating to point one of a second, I've never seen anything like that on watches before. Certainly not ones I work on. And I was questioning this when it was first announced because even the modern certainly modern coaxial movements normally i see them within the zero to one to maybe 1.5 range after they've been serviced anyway so to see this at zero to two it didn't really make sense for me for them to be making a song and dance about it but once i saw the micro regulation i thought if they can make this as accurate as i believe it could be and it's actually workable then it could bridge that gap between people that want accuracy but don't get it from a, a mechanical watch all the people that buy a mechanical watch or get gifted one and then a month later bring it back because it's losing too much time and i think potentially them bringing it out in this rather hideous looking speedmaster means that not many people will get it mm -hmm. so they can test it out in a public and small small batch For sure. to see if it actually works as well as they think it think it will but i think it's probably more exciting than we at first realize. David did a review that I thought, because Alex is on, and as well as being well-known arson watch technician, he's also well-known as being slightly colorblind. So I thought nothing better than a hands-on review of a rare Rolex Yachtmaster 40 watch with a gem set case. Mm. Also, David's article, we all know David is Mr. Rainbow Gemset. Yep. So, David, give us your thoughts on this Rolex. Why are you so keen to spend some time reviewing what is a very rare gem set watch? Yeah, I think it's cool because it's rare. And it's cool because it... Uh, hold on. I think it's cool because it, it's rare and it's cool because it exists. And uh, I don't think that too many people associate with this kind of look with Rolex. But it's some... It's, it's an established part of Rolex. Uh, you know, these gem set watches, they have their own gemology department and their own, um, you know, gem setting craftspeople who, who are working at the factory. So this is not outsourced, contrary to what so many other brands are doing when it comes to uh, high jewelry pieces. So I think it's, it's gem setting taken to the Rolex level. And whether you like this or not, anything taken to the Rolex level, I think is, is kind of interesting and, and, and just cool to discover. And on a personal note, I, I freaking love these watches. I think they're hugely entertaining, um, ridiculously overpriced in some ways because you're essentially paying 50 grand for a bezel and some diamonds in the case uh, compared to the other solid gold. You know, basically the same watch in solid gold on the same bracelet with the same movement and the same dial, it's 50 grand. Um, there's also a possibility of getting a full pave dial uh, with the regular bezel, so it's like all over the shop, basically. Uh, but yeah, these are fantastic to see in person. Whoever has the chance to go into a Rolex boutique and maybe ask for one of these, uh, just to see it once and tick it off your bucket list, I, I would highly recommend that. Uh, every time I see gem set watches now, it just makes me think it's all Jacob and Co's fault for making all these ridiculous, the billionaire watch and stuff. I just think Jacob is driving all the watch brands to make more and more kind of hideous things all the time. This one isn't certainly the worst one that I've seen, and it's on a, a Yachtmaster, which you don't really see out in the street that much anyway. So I, I don't hate this one, and whatever color it is, it's kind of muted, so it's not it's not too bad. <laughs> It's, it's pale. 
final watch review for today and I decided to review this just because it's got comment of the week. If we had a prize for the comment of the week, it would go to Ari5000, whose comment on this watch is, Go home, Hamilton. I can't even say it. Go home, Hamilton. You're drunk. And this is his review of the Hamilton Jazzmaster face-to-face 3 watch. Ariel, explain explain this to me. You, is this something Hamilton have done before? Is yes, this something... there's been two before. That's why it's the three. That, that is, it's not just one of these things like Davis Love the third. <laughs> there is actually a no. There is actually a Davis this, Love the second. And, and this a Davis is Love. the most conservative of all of them. <laughs> Joy. Yeah. The, the funny thing here, and this is what kind of amuses me. The biggest complaint about the other ones is it's too big, right? Because it's like literally two movements they weren't they were they were sort of like next to each other kind of and it was kind of a it's you can check it out you can see the other ones and so the biggest complaints oh it's too big people want to buy smaller ones so they're like how do we take one of our biggest watches but still not make it as big so we'll take out the two movement concept completely (laughs) and what we'll do is we'll add something that isn't really add anything so there's a seconds hand from the chronograph, which goes right through the movement, which I guess that's cool. And there's a pulsometer scale, which is cool. But you could have put that in the front of the dial pretty easily. So yeah. the entire point of flipping the watch to get another face is kind of lost because there's nothing that you can't couldn't have done on one face. <laughs> yeah, I mean, on the back of this watch, it becomes, am I right saying you turn it over to get a 60-second chronograph? Is that right? Well, they're, it's the same hand. Yeah, but it's it's registering 60 seconds only on the yes. back, whereas if you just left it on the front, you could also do 60 seconds, but you'd also get minutes as well. well. That's my point. It's like, turn it over for less stuff. You could have put a <laughs> pulsometer scale. You could have found a spot to print it on the dial. You didn't have to have such an open date disc, for example, right? Like, you could have figured out a way of putting it there. So, like... It's sort of like they develop the product halfway, and they're like, "Okay, guys, we're out of time. We got to release something." They're like, "All right, well, that's what we got." I mean, it's still seventeen mil thick, so it's not like it's, it's, it's you know for going under the cuff. So compare it to so, the previous one. Was oh, that right? The previous one's even bigger. I mean, the the actual design. Forget about the what it does for this turnover. The color scheme, the kind of faded effect the blue it's quite zenithy like el primero like and it's tight kind of coloring on the dial it's a fun toy it's quite they made a fun it's quite nice yeah it's not bad looking it's just it's intellectually a bit lacking (laughs) so i think go home hamilton you're drunk is actually not a bad comment (laughs) on the on on this on this watch so (laughs) there we go Uh, go check that out that is us for this week Ariel, where can we find you on the internet? You can find me on blogtowatch.com, Ariel to watch on Instagram, and in addition to Blog to Watch Weekly, you can hear me on the Superlative Podcast. Good stuff. David, where can we find you on the internet? On blogtowatch.com and also on Instagram at abtw underscore David. See, even almost forgot about your underscore there. Uh, Alex, where can we find you on the internet? Uh, the watch regulator on everything, and I'm on Robin the Rog, Robin the Regulator, Robin, <laughs> Robin oh, the Regulator, and I'm also the Two and a Half Watchmakers podcast as well. Rob and the Regulator, Rob and the Regulator—that's a whole different thing. 
There we go. Anyway, thank you all for joining us this week. Uh, do check out the show notes and do in particular check out the link in those notes, which will take you to the sign-on. You can sign up for the newsletter from a blog to watch every week. So other than that, it's goodbye from me and goodbye from all of them. Say goodbye, gentlemen. Bye, Bye everyone. everyone. Goodbye. Have a good one.